Hello, welcome to Bible Marathon and it's dinner time. The word of God we believe is the best sustenance for the spirit, which is why we are taking our time to study and dine on the word of God. So, join us at the table for word dinner. Galatians 4.30, can you see my screen? Okay, it says, Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. This is Paul quoting the Old Testament, specifically what happened in Genesis. That Isaac and Ishmael, not on the same level, right? One is by the Spirit of God. I mean, she was a barren woman. It took the, the invent, intervention of God to, to have that baby. So that, that shows that it was God's handwork. All right. Um, but then the bondwoman wanted to do it her own way. And, and he says, no, cast out the bondwoman. So he says, so then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So you see how this is how he ends his teaching. And then he moves to chapter 5 from verse 1. So it now makes sense when he says, stand fast, therefore. You know, theologians would say this. When you see the word therefore, you should ask the question, what is it there for? (laughs) And I like like that. It just helps you think better at this. When you see therefore, realize that therefore is a continuation of a thought. This happened, therefore this. And so why should you stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made you free? Well, you do this, therefore, because of the fact that he has called you children of the free woman and not of the bond woman. Does that make sense? And I tried to answer a question last week that, that you know, there's this whole movement, um, the WMSCOG, World Mission Society Church of God. They believe in this thing called God the Mother. And I don't know if they've ever, in, ever encountered them, but they are very, very, you know, dogged in what they believe. So you must be able to defend what you say is right when you approach them. They will tell you, you have to believe in God the Mother to be saved. And their reference text is Jerusalem. The heavenly Jerusalem is our mother. It's, the Bible says she is our mother, Galatians chapter 4. So what does that mean? And I explained it last week. Who can help us explain this text? I want to put it up on the screen because I don't want to jump too quickly. This is the exact example of what I encountered like three years ago in school. Or yeah, I went back to school um, to visit someone and I encountered one of these people. And this was the text they brought up. They asked me a lot of questions and they thought, okay, this person is saved. But then they asked me that, do I believe in you know, in God, God the mother. And I was, I was like, what? What do you mean by God the mother? I said, oh, that's very important to understand. And they just went into scripture. They said, oh, in Genesis, when you read the book of Genesis, you realize that God created everything in his image, but he created man and woman. That means, listen to their logic. That means if we're in the image of God and God is masculine, then there has to be a feminine of God. So that's where the error starts. And then they would say, there's evidence in the New Testament that there is a wife of God in heaven. 
and that wife is the heavenly Jerusalem. So they will say the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. So who can help me out, you know, with all the food in your mouth? Just explain <laughs> Galatians 4.26. Who can help with that? Um, well, so anyone else you said that because Paul said in verse 24 saying these things are being taken figuratively. So that statement still applies to verse 26. Mm-hmm. So in Jerusalem, there was not literal. So the Jerusalem is um is free, which is the mother of all. So it was using it to represent um heavenly Jerusalem, which was referred to in um revelations, I think. Thank you. So let me teach you a Bible interpretation principle. And we're gonna do this before we jump into the next book. Now the Bible interpretation principle is this you must interpret texts as allegorical. If the text itself says it is, I'll say that again. Interpret texts as allegorical if the text itself says it is. So when you are reading Galatians 4, the beginning of this whole storytelling, Paul himself says in verse 24, which things are symbolic. So everything you are going to read henceforth you must have a symbolic mindset that when he says Sarah, it doesn't mean Sarah is your biological mother. When he says Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai cannot give birth to people, but Mount Sinai is mentioned here as giving birth to bondage. So you already know that there is a, there is a, there is a metaphorical use of this word or all these words. So when you hear mother, you hear um, Mount Sinai, you hear bondage, you hear Hagar, you hear all these names. You should know that he's just trying to make an allusion. So why would he switch up, you know, on all of us and now be talking about a real woman that is actually a mother that is married to God in heaven? Like, do you see the, the insanity there? It's crazy. And because it's Bible study, I want to show you this thing. Let me show you. Are you ready? World Mission Society Church of God. And if you're on YouTube and you're watching this and you belong to this this group, they're a cult. Please research on them. All right. They have really messed up the gospel of Christ. I think if Paul was alive today, Galatians 1 would be for them. Where he says, you have turned away from the gospel of Christ to another gospel, which is not another. So look at their group, right? The World Mission Society Church of God. And this is just one of the groups amongst many of them that believe. See, first thing you see on their screen. Look at my screen, please. We believe in... Hey, it has gone. It started with, we believe in God. Please, who saw it? Let me see if I can just go to their beliefs. God the Mother. Thank you. We believe in God the Father and God the Mother according to the Bible. I don't know which Bible they are reading. But no Allah. And then you look at their beliefs. And they start with all these things that you're like, oh yeah, they believe the gospel until they get to to the um they even believe in a lot of things. So like, you know, women's veil that the Bible teaches and they've taken it out of the context, you know, 
their their sense of I I still wonder how they can believe in the Holy Trinity and where is the place of the mother now? Because if God is the mother, if the mother is God, <laughs> who gets my point? So it should be the Holy Quadruple. <laughs> Because God the Father, God the Mother, God the Son, and then God the Holy Spirit, you know. And then they have some weird things. Like this baptism now, their own doctrine is actually that without baptism, you cannot be born again. So there's already a lot of problems here. And I'm just showing you just to know that, you know, there are a lot of people that have taken sound doctrine and messed it up. They messed it up. And it's because, you know, this is the, one, the funniest thing. They believe in the Christ anong hasong or as uh, and san anong all the all you Korean people come and help me out these your these are your friends Korean watchers Korean sh- drama people please unmute yourselves how do you pronounce this one because you come and be doing the anazeo for me oh are you sure Mm-hmm. Yeah, it actually okay. sounds like Korean. Korean. Han is not in Korean. Yeah, it sounds like Korean. It's Korean. And I Sorry. Can you go back, please? So, Christ and Sanyong. And Sanyong. And Sanyong. I'm sorry, guys. Let me put this, let me put this somewhere else and see. What they are saying. Okay. See, this is the person. Is the one is Christ called Christ? Is the one who restored the truth of salvation, including including the new covenant Passover. So they are basically this person actually was saying we've turned away from the truth, and so he is the one that restored the truth back. And what was the truth that he restored? He restored the Passover. But if any of you have been listening to our teachings on types and shadows, you should already know that. Passover has a very clear context. Christ is our Passover. But Christ is Passover, so what do they mean by restored truth? Daphne, I'm happy you know it though, but people don't know it, so that's the point. So we need to be very mm-hmm. careful. And, you know, they believe that they believe that he has, you know, he he came a second time. They they believe a lot of weird things, but please, that's not what we came to study today. I just wanted you to see. Uh-huh. There's There's problem with body of Christ. <laughs> I, I, was, I was confused. Yeah, Ansan Hong. That's Hong. Are you talking about? Ansan Hong no, 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 no. is the name of someone. Yeah, it's the name of someone. Christ and Ansan Hong or something. Is a man that says he has restored the truth of the of salvation. That we've lost it. So he now came back to teach us that you have to keep the Passover to be saved. Going in the body of Christ. <laughs> and, and you know what? Can I shock you even more? It's shocking. What is more shocking is that there are people that believe this. I, I need you to let God warm see, your heart. Of course, now bit. when you're convinced on a thing, like you don't see any wrong in it, yeah. <laughs> and and I think that is also instructive, guys. That even in the Christian faith, like even when you think yes, I have sound doctrine, can you be humble enough to say, hey? I'm open to be instructed that if I study effectively, I hear effectively, and I pray, and I see that what I have, ho- I have held on to for a very long time is wrong, you must have the honesty, the humility to let that go. Christianity, your Christian experience is going to be one of continued relearning and unlearning because over, over the, the past 2,000 years plus, 
if you look at church history, you realize that we've had a cycle of heretics, truth reformers, heretics, truth reformers. Like if just look at the, the, the history of the church, there are people who come, they teach rubbish. Then God will raise some people that will correct it. So the Catholic church, for example, for a very long time, you know, peddled the idea of, um, you know, um, indulgences. So there was a time in the history of the Catholic church where they would take money to pay for the sins of people. And it was very weird. And they did a lot of other things. They were, it was only the clergy that had access to the scriptures so they could teach anything they wanted to. The, late, the, the laymen could not read the scriptures at that time. And so what happened was that someone who was in their own midst, you know, Martin Luther, um, which, who started the, the Reformation, one of the people that started the Reformation, came against this, um, that, this massive system called the Catholic Church and said, hey, I think some things are wrong. And so he goes one day against them, being one of them, first of all, and then, you know, nails the 95 Thesis to say, these are the things that the Bible teaches after reading Romans, after studying the Bible for himself. Is he the one that started the Lutheran Church? The Lutheran Church was named I've heard that one yes. too. That one shocked me. They too have another set of beliefs. There will always be I don't know extremes. what's going on. I don't no. know what's one, day we'll, one, one day we're going to talk about denominations. We'll sit down and we'll look at you know the, their history, how we got to where we are today, and what's the way forward. Because God's idea of the church is one faith, one baptism, one Lord over all. We're supposed to believe one thing. In fact, that's what God has sent pastors, teachers, apostles of all generations to do, to equip the saints, to bring us to what? The unity of the faith. And unity of the faith means agreeing about the same things. Right now, what we are seeing is a reformation in the core beliefs. So there will always be differences. There will always be striving, right? There will always be people who say, I, this is how I worship. Other people say, this is how I do this. But when it comes to the core foundations of our faith, salvation by grace through faith, not of works, we will all agree on that. There is coming a time when the church will agree on that. Every other thing might just be, you know, the, I would say the peripherals of, of, of the faith. Those things can vary. How do we worship? Some churches, whether or not you teach them, you know, that it was culturally intended in 1 Corinthians 10 for them to cover their hair or not, no matter what you teach, they will cover their hair. And it's okay. It does not affect anything about their soul. So it's fine. That doesn't affect the core of, this, of the message. But once we have a church saying you are saved by faith alone, and then you have another church saying you're not saved by faith alone, that's what we are saying. That's the problem. That's where the problem is. That has to be fixed. And that's what God has done through preachers, teachers, people that he's raising in the body of Christ. I'm, I'm quoting from Ephesians chapter 4, by the way. Um, Teresa, I'm seeing your hand up. Um, I, just want, I want you to... You said something, but I'm going to go back to it. But I don't think you should repeat that thing I said. When you say text, you must interpret it. Okay, okay, I'll help you out. So, mm -hmm. in Bible interpretation, one of the rules is only interpret a text as allegorical if the author says it clearly that it is allegorical. So, your so interpretation literally, unless it is yes, don't interpret it literally unless it is so. When you see a text as being literal, 
the right way to interpret it is literal. Okay, so the if, only okay, okay. So when you say text, you must interpret it allegorically, unless the text itself says so. Have you there? I didn't. No, no, no. You just you're mixing it up. So read a text as allegorical only when the author says it is allegorical. So if, for example, if Jesus is talking and he says, "Behold, a parable," don't go and be interpreting it as something that really happened. It's a story. So on, you interpret it as a story with a divine meaning, of course, but it's a story. When Paul says this is an analogy, then you stay with it as an analogy. Like this is common sense, right? But I feel sometimes we have to clearly define it like this so that people understand what we're saying. All right, so those are some of the rules of Bible interpretation. When it comes to interpreting text of Scripture, one verse cannot mean 500 things to different people. That is not orthodoxy. That is not what Christianity is supposed to be. We're supposed to see one text and by diligent study and humble approach to the scriptures come to the same conclusion. That's what is supposed to happen. So we, listen, we can listen to each other, we can debate, but we must agree that this is the one meaning of this text. I've taught this many times, Bible interpretation, but I'll do it again and again because we're always having you know, new people come around. So let's go back to Galatians chapter 5. Any question on everything I've said so far? All right, so silence means let's proceed. So Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Christ has made us free. We're no longer under bondage. So stand fast in that freedom. Don't be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Who are the people that would be directly spoken about in this, in this context? Who do you think Paul is, is speaking to directly? The, the Jews, the ones who were stuck in the law and the bondage that comes with the law, right? So Paul is saying, you are free in Christ. You should not be under the elemental forces that would say, taste not, touch not. All those things in the Old Testament, you know, laws that said this is how you must do, you know, observe a new moon. You must do this. When this happens, do that. You know, he says, no, you're not under the elemental forces of the world anymore. You're not under the control or the bondage of the law. There's no more bondage. Now you are free in Christ. And that's what the context of freedom is. I've heard people use this text very, like, sorry, I'm, I'm upset. I've seen people take this text to perpetuate all manner of falsehood so they say oh we are free in christ so we can do and they mention sins they start mentioning things that are sinful to do i'm like did you read the text the liberty has a context it is freedom in christ anything christ says you should not do you should not do you are free oh but use your freedom for the glory of god that that's very important like, we are free. There are some things that should not... For example, you know, just as a loose example, there are some things that under the law would have, would have been crucified for. Like, so, let me just paint a random picture. Let's say the law of Moses once said, if you listen to any song by any secular artist you are going to be condemned to stoning. Let's just say that was the law. 
Now you come into Christ, you have a deeper understanding of that law, that it was not just the, the, the impact of the law, the point of the law was not, if you listen to this song, you will die. It was the heart behind it. What was your heart doing with that? And so the reason God, you know, gave them the law and said, don't listen to this song. This, again, this is just completely an example. The reason he said, don't listen to this song, otherwise this will happen, was because he wanted to shield them from sin as much as possible till the time when an inner regulator will come and give the right desires and control us from within and guide us to truth. So now in Christ, they are playing the song, they are jamming it. I won't go and be looking for it, but if I'm hearing it, I will not have the law mindset of, oh my God, I'm going to die. <laughs> I'm going to be in the, at a place of freedom, which is okay, I'm listening to this song, but I'm above this song in the sense that it's not going to affect me because I'm, I'm, I'm free. I, I wish I could explain it even deeper than that. So while I'm not the one going to seek out those things which God has rightfully said are wrong, I am still within freedom such that if I hear it, it doesn't affect me. Um, if I'm around it or I play it, it, it does, it's not something that changes the... the, the um, you don't condemn the, yourself. The, yeah, there's no, there's no internal condemnation that comes with that. So I, I use that random example because there are many things I could use, but I just wanted something you can relate to immediately, you know. Um, so there is something called the yoke of bondage, and, and, and Paul says you are free from that yoke, completely free. So indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, look at the example, so you understand that he's talking to the Jews. He says, indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Why is this a big deal? You see, a lot of people thought that becoming a member of the body of God, the family of being a part of the family of God required circumcision. And they were right at the time, right? Abraham had to be circumcised. Moses was almost killed. Do you realize that Moses was almost killed because he was not um, circumcised? One day. The Bible just says... His son, because his son was not circumcised. Because his son was not circumcised. Sorry. Not Moses. Thank you very much. But Moses was going to be killed. And so what did the mom, um, the mother realize to do? Because he's like, ah, I need to be in the covenant. That was what it was all about. They had to be under the covenant. And so that's how Moses escaped death. But just think about the implications of that. Like someone could actually die because blood was not shed. And that was the import of circumcision. You only belong to God if you are circumcised. So now that Christ has come and the true circumcision is of the spirit, why should you still go and get physically circumcised for the sake of being a part of God's family? Remember, circumcision here is not the medical um, procedure which a lot of men go through. When they are young, children, right? They, there's the medical circumcision. But this one was not medical. In fact, the, if you understand what they did <laughs> to circumcise children on the eighth day in the Old Testament, you know that it was very bloody and very, very uncomfortable. All right. But um, so you, there's a question. How did she know to do that? 
I think it's a combination of two things. When you're under the law, there are some things that become apparent to you. So if you have seen, if you, you know, when you read it, all you're just seeing is just the rules and regulations. If you do this, you'll be stoned. If you do this, you'll be stoned. Wait, the Lord may come now. Under the, the law, Moses, under, this is um, under the, the um, what's it so called? Moses was leaving. When God told him to go and feed the Israelites. I don't know when it happened. So the the accounts of I think two things to note. The account of Exodus has a lot of while for the most part there is a clear timeline flow, right? There are some times that the timeline doesn't flow in the writings of Moses. The first five books. There are some things that you if you read how many of you many of you have read Genesis, right? Because we've been reading through that um Genesis, Exodus, you realize that. There were some things that showed up in um, verse 3 of Genesis chapter 1 that happened after. You go to Genesis chapter 5, verse 2, and it's referencing something that happened in Genesis chapter 1. Let me show you real quick. This is off topic, but when when did God create everyone? He says in Genesis 1.26, let us create man in our own image, right? This is chapter 1. What is chapter 5 doing? Taking us back again. This, he created them male and female and blessed them. But it has happened already. So you have to understand, so you have to understand that there is, a, there is a narrative style of writing in the Old Testament. Have you ever read it where something was written in Exodus, you see it in 1 Kings? Or you read something in Second Kings, you see it in First Chronicles. Have you ever seen that before? Mm. If you haven't, you will see. Just be reading your Bible. You'll be like, what's going on? Are they confused? No. It is narrative style of writing. You know how you can write a story and you want to do a flashback? They didn't have the concept of a flashback back then. It was just, let's just write the story. So it takes you to sit down and say, oh, when could this have happened? Do you understand? So when would God punish someone for not being circumcised. Uh, it's under the law. That was where it was commanded. That was where there was a there was a um an instruction that if this didn't happen, this would be a, this would be the resultant effect. So it is safe, and a lot of theologians will agree, it is safe to uh, to uh, to accept or to judge that um Zipporah had a knowledge of the law. Alright, I think that was her name had the knowledge of the law to, to, to take that step. And we, you know, history proves that she was right. So it's very possible that they had seen that happen a lot. It's possible. She said, ah, that's what it is. You know, or by, just by supernatural revelation, she just knew. But we don't know. We don't have as much information as to how she, she knew that, but she did. All right. Um... So let's let's continue. Or more people, I like it. It's Bible study, so we'll go everywhere. Then we'll come back to where we're supposed to be. So Galatians five two. Indeed, I Paul say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Why? Why will Christ profit him nothing? Because what what do you think is the real issue here? Because he's trying to work for his salvation. That's mm-hmm. the summary. He's trying to work for his salvation. Because if I get circumcised, ha, I belong to Abraham's family. I'm, I'm Abraham's seed. But no, 
The true way to become Abraham's seed is by what? Faith. We've learned that from the very beginning. Galatians chapter 2, you know. What about the woman? Woman, um, so under this covenant, it was men that were, and, and some people might think, oh, this is a patriarchal society. Absolutely, it was. It was. Um, men were created first, right? And so when it comes to starting a family or building a family, where, who does God recognize as the, the prototokos of the family? Or the 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 main, um, what's it called? The main point of contact for a family. It was the man. It's not a God of Sarah, Rebecca, and and um, and um, what's her name? Rachel. It's the God of Abraham, so, Isaac, and Jacob. So representing that family is the man. So when it comes to like circumcision, the man represents that family or that lineage and so they have to do the right does that make sense they have to perform that right so same thing goes like and that's why in the if you read the old testament very well when a woman loses her husband she's she's seen as desolate like she has to marry again because in that culture without a man's like without being married to a man you didn't have societal value you know and christ came to change a lot of that which is a separate teaching like even in the old testament you know they want there was a debate about some daughters who were supposed to naturally inherit you know the the they were become they're supposed to be heirs to their father's inheritance but normally it goes to the to the men but there was no man so they brought it as an issue and they were debating it. And God actually said, give it to the woman. So you can tell that God was never patriarchal in that sense, you know. But that was the culture that was there. And God still dealt with the men because, I mean, based on creation, it is the man's seed that produces children. So there's a lot to say about that. But um, exactly, look at, if you read Ruth, I read Ruth with Dara a long time ago and that was um, one thing that we just discovered, you know, like when you look, look at it, you just kind of see women as seemingly, you know, being like, I don't use the word, I don't like it, like being as, <laughs> it's, I think we've come a long way, but they just, they were just like property, in the family do you get it was like you could you could have them you could you know pay for them and and honestly that is that actually shows a deviation from god's god's design man there's a lot to talk about someone should remind me i need to show you how um god has been interfering with the traditions of men to show that hey men and women are created in the same image of god like there is no if there's anything that, we, that differs between man and woman, it is, apart from just the physiological differences, it will be maybe roles in, in, in marriage. Apart from that, God sees you as... In fact, Paul makes that same point in Galatians 4. There is neither male nor female. Like, you don't... When it comes to Christ, they, they, we are unified. Christ is the one that brings back the sanity and the sanctity of God's creation. All right, so it's so important to have that 
that clearly spelled out. But because we are reading the Bible and the Bible is not abstracted from the culture, you have to read with the eyes of, of truth, even in those situations. Does that make sense? So, Christ will profit you nothing because you're trying to get it by your own effort. And circumcision was the effort. It says, verse 3, And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep the law. I like how Paul is talking. You want to get circumcised, do it now. Make sure that you complete the law with it. You know how it's like, <laughs> it's like, I remember that we used to have one, one classmate in secondary school, um, GSS1, I think. And the teacher would give us assignments, right? Do you remember New General Mathematics? One book like that, yellow like this. So we'll do the assignment, we'll solve it. So there was one boy who was always doing I2 know. I used to be the I2 know, but this one was more than me. So in class, we would have done the assignment, we'll come, we'll submit. The boy will now come and say, ah, sir, I did A, B, A. I did 1A, 1B, 1C. And we now tell, like, he only gave us one A. The guy who do only A, one B, one C. We now come and show the teacher, sir, I've done it. I did everything. So we will now be like, what is wrong with this guy now? Because at the beginning, the teacher will now be like, ah, see this guy. He's very good. You people should do one B, one C. So we will now be very angry. We will now say, oh, what's wrong with you? So one day, <laughs> so I said, Pastor. So one day, this was when we were very happy because, um, the teacher too was now getting enervated. He was getting pissed. Like, okay, you are doing the most. So the guy now came one day and said he did the assignment and he did one A, one B, one C. He even did the one that the teacher has never taught in class. So the teacher now said, Mr. Ayola, he now said, go and do everything. Finish the whole chapter. He said, nobody else should do it. This guy alone should do it. So he, now <laughs> so he was now there in class. He was now solving everything. First of all, what we discovered is that he did not really know it. So he had a lesson teacher that was helping him to do his assignment. So he didn't really know all those things. Number two, it was so funny because we now saw the, like, okay, so it's, first, it's not good to be an I2 know when you don't really know anything. Because see what happened to him. He had to stay there and solve and do it. I was just very tired. I remember I was a nice kid, so I bought, um, you know, remember Fine Yogo? I, I can remember this thing so vividly. I bought fine yoga and brought it for him. He was still in class. Everybody had gone home. He was still there solving. So that's exactly what this text is. Like, okay, you want to do it, right? Do it. You will do everything. You will solve everything. You will finish the textbook. And that's exactly what the Lord does. The Lord doesn't just tell you to do one thing. So if somebody comes to you and says, ah, even though it's already out of context, they say, do you see? Why are you wearing trousers? Don't you know trousers is for men? Ah. This is you say, ah, okay, mad, you, <laughs> you, do you wear trousers? No. Okay, then you have to also not do all these things. So you show them the whole law. You cannot just keep this one. Don't wear polyester and cotton together. When you are on your period, don't come outside your house. You must do purification rites. You must, you list all the things in Leviticus for them. Don't eat shrimp, don't eat pork. Don't, don't even go, do you know that sometimes in the day you are not supposed to go out? Give them the list and say, if you are going to tell me what I, about what I'm wearing, because you are the amazing Jew that you are, do everything that the Lord commands. God bless you, man. Thank you very much. You know, it's so sad that people don't understand the purpose of the law. And I hope if you are here, you know where my heart is. I've taught on this a lot. The law 
apart from the fact that it was written to the Jews, so if you are not a Jew, it doesn't apply to you. It was also the civil law, their constitution, meaning if you are not in that nation, it doesn't apply to you as well. The Nigerian law does not apply to you in America. With the exception, there are some exceptions, right? I know there are some laws that go overseas. If you do something here, because you are nationality tied to a particular country, it affects you. But you get what I mean. In Singapore, you chew gum, you throw it on the floor, you are arrested for chewing gum and throwing it on the floor. In Nigeria, you can chew five packs, nobody cares. The laws are different. Same thing goes with Jews. There are some laws that you, you cannot break or you die. But outside of the Jewish system, if you're not a Jew, it doesn't apply to you. So why carry the burden of the law as a Gentile? And then now Paul is saying to the Jews themselves, in Christ, there is, the law does not apply to them anymore. You are now in a new geographical location in Christ. And so what, what, what applies in Christ is the way of Christ, the law of the spirit of life in Christ. Verse 4, it says, you have become estranged from Christ. Who are the people that have become estranged from Christ? What, what does the word estranged mean? Is the simple word stranger. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, you are now strangers. You've been taken away, you know, from Christ. Now, does it mean, have you lost your salvation? Do you think that's what he's referring to? Because I have to bring that up. When he says you have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. This text is one very, very heavy text where, you know, if you've taught a lot on the beautiful, be, the beautiful um, guarantee we have in Christ when we are saved, or you've heard about perseverance of the saints, and you're very strong in that position. Like, yes, I know that I'm saved, and God is going to preserve, preserve me till the end. But then you see a verse like this, and then you start asking questions. Does it mean that someone can fall from grace? Does it mean that someone who was in Christ can be estranged from Christ? Like, can you actually have a divorce from Christ? Who can answer that question? Nah. Yes, please. Um, so, it's saying that you will attempt to be justified by the law. So, I know it, it was talking about, um, it's, it's talking to people who are saved, right? But I also feel like uh, what, what he's trying to say here is that if you, if you like really, if you attempt, if you are still trying to be saved or be justified by the law, like then maybe you didn't really, maybe you didn't really put your faith in, in what Jesus Christ has done. Mm. Right? So. Okay. Kind of like maybe you're not like really in the camp before. Mm. When you say estranged from Christ, it already alludes to you were once in Christ. You were there before. Yeah. Teresa, do you want to talk, to talk about it? Um, I think it's, it's saying that because you have been um, estranged from Christ, you were attempted to justify by you have fallen from grace. I, I don't think is you... Um, you've not been in the faith anymore. But I think it's like they're not 
they're not acting, they're acting like they're a stranger to Christ in the sense that they're not using the grace that Christ has given. So they are falling from grace and they're trying to be justified, but they're trying to do it by their own work. So they are not living with the grace that Christ has provided. So they're acting like they are strangers to what Christ has given. They are, they are acting like they are not part of Christ's family because they're trying with their own works. Meanwhile, receive a part of Christ. You already have that grace. I don't know if it makes sense, but as we understand, yeah. as you said, you have fallen from grace. You're no longer like holding on to the grace that Christ has already provided. Yeah. So here's I like I like your 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 responses so far. I, I think this is the teaching I want I want us to maybe conclude our session today with. And that is the the teaching of the balanced teaching of eternal salvation. Okay. And I, I know this will continue to be a debate and a conversation for a very long time. But I can tell you two facts. The first fact, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and trust in him with everything and not depend on your, your ability to, to, to please him as being the requirement for your, for your salvation and you trust in Christ alone, you believe in the sacrifice of Jesus, the Bible bets. In fact, Jesus... God swore an oath that he will fulfill that promise to give you eternal life. So if you trust in Christ, you will be saved. It's not a fluke. It's not a maybe. And when he says you will be saved, the, 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 the concept of salvation is salvation to the uttermost. Salvation is not real salvation if you don't receive a new body. Salvation is a full package. You start by believing the gospel, God gives you assurance by putting his spirit in you. You experience sanctification as a believer where God continues to hammer into your character and change your life by his spirit within you, that sanctification. And then when Christ returns, he would purge you completely of all the impurities and give you a new body. So salvation is not complete until it's complete. Do you get what I mean? There's a consummation of salvation. So if you say I'm saved, you are basically saying I'm, tr- I'm trusting God for the final redemption. Now, how can you trust God for final redemption? You do that by believing his word to be true till the end. And, and so this, <laughs> this is, the, this is the, the balance that people need to understand. There are many scriptures that teach on the perseverance of the saints, that God is going to keep you. For example, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, I'm convinced of this very thing, that he who started a good work will complete it. When he says will complete it, what is he talking about? Redemption. You have a new body. He will change. In the twinkle of an eye, you will be changed. All right? So that is one fact. What God has started, he will complete because he will stick to what he has said. His word will not fall to the ground. Now, on the other side, there is always a recurring instruction in all of scripture. No matter where you read, every epistle has one instruction, consistent instruction. Who can tell me what that instruction is? Well, I'll tell you because of time. Hold to faith. So, the Christian is promised eternal life, but the Christian is always also commanded to hold fast to the faith. 
So you read Hebrews 3, where it says, um, you are his house if you hold fast to that which you have believed from the beginning. Or why is Paul writing the book of Galatians to begin with? It's to correct people that think you can switch. No, he says you must walk in the spirit, continue what you started in the spirit, not in the flesh. And how do you do that? Walking in the spirit is by faith. You keep trusting in God. So the balance is this. If you're in Christ, no matter the trials and tribulations and difficulties and doubts you experience, as long as your trust is in the finished work of Christ <coughs> and not in yourself or in your ability, you are saved. And you can rest. You can be assured. You can know that no matter what, where you are, whatever happens, when Christ returns, because your confidence is not in yourself but in him, you know that you will be saved. You know that you will have that new body. You know that you will live with him forever. So what I am not teaching is um, once saved, always saved. Because the Bible is not teaching that. The Bible is teaching more like saved by faith. <laughs> Do you understand? That's what the Bible teaches. It's not this automatic thing of now you have an emblem, you know, and then you are saved. It's a thing of you are saved by faith and proof that you truly had faith is that you continue in that faith. And it's not left to you alone. God helps you, you know, but you must stay in faith. And what is staying in faith? Don't start looking at it as a work. It's just believing, trusting in God, saying, ah, I can't do this on my own. I don't think I can, you know, save myself. I trust in you. In every situation of your life, trusting that Christ is the one that has done what he promised. So look at this text. Um, Daphne put this in the text and the chat. I love it. It's in first, 2 Timothy 1, 12. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. Listen. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. And he was talking about the fact that the, the people God had given to him, he knows and trusts that God will finish the work he started. And I can trust that God will do it. But this same person that trusted, it gave instructions that, ah, you know, check to see whether you're in the faith. If you really believed or you believed in vain. You know, there are a lot of instructions that look like that. So the, the question now, you know, that you should be asking is, you, I'm asking you as the believer, Am I in faith? Because that's all you are, you are asked to do. What does being in faith mean? Trusting Christ. is not, funny enough, is not living your life perfectly. But trusting Christ will, want to, will, will guide you and make you desire to live holy and righteous, right? The grace of God that um, brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us to un deny ungodliness and worldly lust and live soberly. So there's a life that follows true faith. So I, I, want you to, I want to leave with this. The Christian, the only thing you should be worried about is faith, hope, and love as the Christian. Faith in Christ Jesus, hope of his return, and love for all the saints. If you have those three, that's, that's all Christianity is really about. But you cannot... Like, if I see someone who is saying, I'm a Christian, but there is no faith, 
I'm not seeing any evidence of faith. Like they don't sound like they're trusting in Jesus, which is what Paul was rebuking here. They didn't look like they were trusting Jesus. They were trying to circumcise themselves. They were trying to obey the law. So Paul has to be like, ah, I am not sure whether you people really know what the gospel is about because you have to believe that it's God that does the work. So let me correct you. You see that? Or if I see people that don't have hope, I have to re-instruct them again in the word of God that, hey, it's about hope. You need to trust in Christ that he's going to do what he said. Hope does not disappoint because the love of Christ is shed abroad in our heart. And then I also want to see love. So if I'm seeing a believer that says I'm a Christian, but they, all they have is hate for people, then I'll reach, reach them like John did. If you say you love God, but you hate your neighbor, you don't have God. Like this is the, the terminology of the apostles. That's how they taught. So if we now try to go away from the teaching of the apostles and just say, oh, you believe in Jesus, you pray the prayer of salvation and you are saved forever. That's you rebuking all of scripture and saying, I don't care what God has to say. God's, the balanced teaching in God's word is, hey, I have to ask you, do you believe Jesus Christ died for your sins? That's step one. Are you going to hold on to that belief with evidence in your life showing that you truly believed it? That's what gives me a guarantee that you are in faith. Because faith is from first to last. It is not uh, faith, initial faith, and then no faith at all. So, in fact, this is answering the question some people might have. That you see a lot of people, maybe in college or your friends, they say they are Christians. And you are asking them, you know, are you a Christian? They say yes. And then everything else they say is not just that they are poorly taught but it doesn't even seem like they have a relationship with God at all. So in that moment, what do you do? You preach the gospel to them again, because maybe they didn't believe. The, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It does something in a person. It changes them. So if you're not seeing any evidence of change, maybe there was no faith, because faith is the evidence of things that are hoped for. There's something you're looking forward to, which is the return of Christ, and that should influence how you live. If that lifestyle doesn't change or is not progressively changing towards righteousness, then you have every right to question. I hope you get the balance. The, the teaching of the Bible on this topic is never white, black or white. It is always you, the individual. You said you believe in Jesus Christ, right? Let's see something. Show me your faith and show me your works. The work should be a result of the faith that you have. So let me pause and just get feedback because I'm, I'm done. I'll stop here and we'll continue next week. But any questions, clarify, you know, you have a clarifying question. I have a question. Sure. Is it when, okay, so basically, if someone says, I no longer put my faith in Jesus, I no longer believe in this Bible, this Jesus, yeah. I don't know, that person is literally no longer a believer. So, what is it? Let me ask you a question. Let me give you a question. I'm asking you the question. What is a believer? You believe in Jesus. You believe in his death and resurrection. I believe that because of that you're So, if somebody stops being a believer, are they a believer? But they, is it that they were not a believer? Now that, what you're asking me now is a doctrinal question. If you were to, If you ask me that question... And I go from the theological angle. I'll tell you, I don't think they were believers to begin with. What of the Holy Spirit? I know that's, that's the, the point I'm making. That's what the, of the evidence of speaking in tongues. 
Also, this, this, but have you met anybody that spoke in tongues? Because that's the evidence. No, anybody that doesn't believe you just cannot speak in tongues. At least we know that one for sure. Okay, so let me, let me, let me. Would you speak? We are online. Hold on, hold on. We are online. I'm going to say some things now, and I want you to understand where I'm going with this, please. All right. And it's because I want you guys to be as thoroughly furnished in the word of God as possible. Don't take anything I say, you know, at face value. Go back and study. Think about it as well. Now, this phrase, evidence of speaking in tongues, where did we get it from? Because, okay, I'm going to do this carefully. Now, when you get saved, right? <laughs> what makes you saved? Faith in Jesus, Faith correct? Faith in Jesus. I'm not saying that's the evidence. I'm not saying that's the evidence of you believing. I'm saying that the, because the, I'm talking about the Holy Spirit indwelling in someone. We can't really see like face value who the Holy Spirit is in a yeah. person. But the person speaking is literally one of the even gifts of even some gifts do not really show that people are believing because. The devil imitates things, but like that's one evidence that shows that the Holy Spirit indwells in a person. Yeah, I'm about evidence of you just I'm not saying that's evidence of, because people don't, it's not everybody that speaks in tongues. That it's not everybody that is a believer that speaks in tongues, and does not mean they do not believe, they just do not speak in tongues. Good. Am I really, am I quick? Daphne, hold on, Daphne, hold on. Let's finish. I'm not connecting that to putting your faith in Jesus. I'm asking that. That speaking in tongues is one evidence that that it's 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 it shows that the Holy Spirit is in a person. It's an evidence that we cannot deny because yeah. we don't know who the Holy Spirit is going in different people. But it's an evidence that you cannot deny. Is it possible for someone like that that clearly the Holy Spirit is indwelling in that person because that is something that only believers can do? Speaking in tongues, can that person? not believe or deny their faith and if they do does the holy spirit leave that person so i'm not connecting putting your faith okay. okay so i think let's let's make it very clear that ns said the main um, evidence according to the bible of true salvation is the fruit of the spirit hmm not the gifts, not any outward um, demonstration. I'll tell you why. Because even in the Bible, we have something called lying signs and wonders. We have people in the last days who will do miraculous things that Jesus did. Mm. And we will not be able to tell except by the spirit of discernment that these things are not of God. I mean, maybe you haven't, I had a phase where I was studying deeply and I was like, you know, trying to find out a lot of things. Then I came across a group, a sect, a Hindi sect. So they are, Hindu, they are Hindus, Hinduists, right? And they, they would gather together and they would speak in, in unintelligible languages. So you look at them, if you didn't know they were um, Hinduists, you would think, ah, they are speaking in tongues. So we have to be very careful as believers that when we see something, the 
the, what the Bible calls evidence is what should be evidence. This, this phrase, evidence of speaking in tongues, is not in the Bible. Is it an evidence that something supernatural has happened in a person's life? Absolutely. Is it the main evidence? I don't think so. Should every believer and Christian speak in tongues or desire to speak in tongues? Yes. The Bible tells us to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. But when you come to this question of what is the evidence of salvation, I want to say it with two things. The evidence, listen to this, the evidence of salvation is faith. <laughs> I'll explain that. The second evidence of salvation is the fruit of the Spirit. There, have, there has to be results that, that prove that the Spirit is in a person. They could be gifts, absolutely. Thank, thank God for gifts. You must desire gifts. But the primary thing that even in a gathering of people who believe in Jesus that are flowing in the gifts of the Spirit, Paul still has to regulate them and point them back to the fruit of the Spirit, right? That's the whole point of 1 Corinthians. They're speaking in tongues. They don't, they're not giving each other a turn to interpret. They're not caring for each other in the, in the gathering of the saints. You know, 1 Corinthians 9, they come together. 1 Corinthians 11, they come together um, and Paul says, what you are doing when you come together is not the Lord's Supper. Some of you are getting drunk, so people are not getting food to eat. You know, this is supposed to be a welfare program where people are taking care of. You are not, but you are ex excelling in all the gifts, prophecy, healings. You get, so at the end of the day, Paul is pointing them back to the fruit of the Spirit. If you are truly saved, there must be evidence in your character that looks like love, joy, peace, patience, things that only the Spirit of God can genuinely produce in you. So that's what that's the differentiating mark and what I would call the evidence. Now let me go back to the first one thing I said. I said the evidence of salvation is faith. Who can tell me the verse I, I just quoted by saying that? Hebrews 11.1 1. Because the context is faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. We do not see heaven. We do not see God. We do not see Jesus. We do not see salvation. Faith is the evidence, is the proof, is the receipt that we have that salvation that we're looking forward to. So my what I would look for in anybody to know if they are truly saved is that lasting faith. Do they believe? Are they still holding on? So that's, that's what I'm saying. I must see something that gives me enough evidence to say this person believes that something is coming. There's a new body coming, and so they are living their lives aligned with that. The decisions they make in their lives proves that they, there's a life beyond this one. That's, that's what I will look for when it comes to evidence of salvation. Before I look for, oh, they speak in tongues, oh, they lay hands on the sick, beautiful stuff. Do you understand? I think it's something we need to train ourselves in, especially in this generation that we're in. There's so much, so much weirdness, and we have to have that scriptural balance. That was an awesome meal. Thank you for joining us as we studied the Word of God. If you would like to join the actual World Dinner Sessions live on Fridays, you can visit the link page. It's always on Fridays, 9pm West African time. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at bmg.global and see you when next it's dinner time. <laughs>